talk tonight. We're gonna we're in part thirteen, and uh, it, Paul's gonna deal with some really uh, pressing, crucial issues that I think uh, have brought a lot of confusion to Christians. Not what Paul said, but they have questions about what Paul is going to address. So, part thirteen, the issue of authority. And as soon as I say the word authority, uh, an image immediately comes into your mind, something like a uh, police, uh, the military, um, the government, or mom, dad, a boss. But the word authority doesn't tend to give us a warm fuzzy on the inside when we hear it because we're not always thrilled with authority. And that's what Paul is going to talk about tonight. So I want you to turn to part 13 and let's get rolling Last time we saw that, in, in light of God's incredible mercies towards us, it's only reasonable to him to offer our bodies a living sacrifice. It's only then that we're going to be able to live out the truths that he gave to us in chapters 6 through 8 particularly. So once again, I want to reiterate, you cannot walk out Christianity, be successful in it, bear fruit, crucify the flesh, be filled with the Spirit. Uh, honor God, glorify God in your life without presenting your body to him. What did Paul tell us in another place in Corinthians? He said, um, you are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. All right? They belong to God. So let's look at verse 1 because we're going to talk this time about divinely sanctioned role of government, is God behind government, and the believer's responsibility to those that are in um, some position of authority, those that are in power. So verse 1, let's read it. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Now, a lot of us trip over that immediately. So I want you to hang tough with me because we're going to better understand uh, the repercussions and the working out of that verse as we go on. Human government derives its authority from God, all right? It's a delegated authority. Paul shows that governments are appointed by God. That's what he said. There's no authority except what God has established, all right? So human government was inaugurated by God first and foremost after the flood when he placed into Noah's hand the, uh, the sword of the magistrate. That is, the authority to execute capital punishment. And God literally gave this to Noah post-flood. It says Genesis 9, verse 6, God says to Noah, Whoever sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. Now, those words launched man on the road of self-government. That was the beginning of self-government right there. When, when Noah received the authority from God to execute capital punishment on somebody who committed murder. All right? That was the beginning of government. But like everything else entrusted to man, everything, human government soon failed. The story of the Tower of Babel shows how man used his newfound authority to literally plan and organize rebellion against God. The very throne of God itself 
And up to this time, rebellion against God had been an individual matter. But now it became federal because mankind was building this tower. It was a crazy aspiration. It would never have worked. But it was man deciding to go separate from God and independent from God and do his own thing. And God put an end to that quickly with the confusion of languages. Now, despite the abuses of governmental power, human government is still a divine institution, all right? The powers that be are ordained of God. Now, the word power means delegated authorities, and the word ordained means appointed. Now, I know what you're thinking, and I thought the same thing. What about evil government, wicked government? Well, evil men may be elected to power, or they may seize power like Hitler did. He seized it uh, uh, with violence and by lying and subterfuge. They may have no thought of God at all, those that are ruling. And I believe right now our own government is being run by a whole lot of people that have no thought for God at all. They never think about God. They have no conscience towards God. Um, God may be some distant idea at best. That's it. And I believe that's primarily what is running our government right now. But the very fact that he permits them to seize the reins of government means that he has a purpose to fulfill even through their misrule. And here's where we've got to learn to trust the sovereignty of God, all right? It's a saying well worth considering that people get the kind of government they deserve. And I don't know, what does that say about us right now? Are we getting the government we deserve? Governments may be weak and they may be strong, just or oppressive, benevolent or cruel like North Korea or the Chinese, uh, cruel to their people. Wise or foolish, you can have wise government, pretty rare these days. I don't know if I can think of any national world government right now that I would call wise. There's a lot of foolish ones. But in each case, what we got to remember is this, God has his way and moves his own plans forward. This is Paul's thinking. And remember, his thinking is not just Paul's thinking. It's not the thinking of a man but he was moved on by the Holy Spirit to write what he wrote. So these are God's principles, all right? Democracies and dictatorships alike are under his control. But the tapestry he is weaving is perfect, and all the pressures of satanic force and human sin are gloriously overruled by a God who is both omnipotent, all-powerful, and omniscient, all-knowing, all right? And he's omnipresent everywhere at once. Now, one of the great lessons of the book of Daniel, if you read the book of Daniel, it is all about the sovereignty of God and how the sovereignty of God rules over even pagan nations and pagan rulers because God keeps a firm hand on history is the message of the book of Daniel. Daniel 4, verse 34, talks about Nebuchadnezzar who was full of pride, full of arrogance, thought that the kingdom of Babylon was all his doing and from him, by him, and because of him. But God humbled Nebuchadnezzar where he lost his mind, began eating grass like a cow, 
living in the fields, walking around on all fours, crawling. Fingernails grew long like talons. Hair grew long like feathers. He went completely insane. And at the end of this terrible period of humbling in his life, verse 34 records, at the end of that time, this is Nebuchadnezzar talking, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my sanity was restored. You want your sanity restored? Turn your eyes towards heaven. You want sanity and soundness and, and um, clear thinking to be restored? Turn your eyes towards heaven and towards God's word. He's given us a, power, a spirit of power and love and a sound mind. All right? Then Nebuchadnezzar goes on to say, I praise the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. Look at how Nebuchadnezzar was humbled. He, he went down into insanity full of arrogance and pride. He came out of his humbling, looking towards heaven and praising God. Beautiful. And so what does it show? God was in charge of a pagan ruler and God was in charge of the kingdom of Babylon, though it didn't look like it. Now next, Paul goes on to show that governments are approved by God. Verse 2, consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. Now, the reason that we even need government is because of the fallen nature of man. Society without government would be impossible with, with just leaving it up to man and his fallen nature. Uh, anarchy, pandemonium would result overnight. If, if today all governmental authority, the police, firemen, uh, the government, the military, if all of the different forms of delegated authority were shut down right now as I speak, by tomorrow morning, the world would be in, in flames, and we would be hiding in our homes, armed to the teeth to protect ourselves. That's why there's government, because of the fallen nature of man. The authority of the state is grounded in the will of God. To resist rulers is to resist what God has appointed, and it will result in incurring judgment. Now, here's the exception, because I know what you're thinking. Well, what about wicked rulers? What about wicked laws? Here's the exception. The exception to this principle would be that time when the state requires an action that runs directly against the written word of God or the Christian conscience that is grounded in his revealed will. Now, let me give you a couple of examples of when we are to practice um, willful disobedience, civil disobedience, all right? In the Old Testament, when the children of Israel were languishing in Egyptian slavery and Moses had been born, the Hebrews mid, Hebrew midwives were ordered by Pharaoh to kill every male child. Listen to this horrible edict. Exodus 1 verse 15, the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, when you help the Hebrew women in childbirth and observe them on the delivery stool, if it's a boy, kill him. So we got Old Testament abortion. 
We have Old Testament infanticide. Our culture is literally no different right now. We kill the preborn, we kill the postborn. All right? We commit abortion, we commit infanticide. Now, I want you to see what God thought of this, because this was Pharaoh's edict. He says, Kill every boy that is born. But if it's a girl, let her live. But the midwives had an issue. This went against their conscience. They feared God. What did they know about God that our culture doesn't? That to kill children was wrong. They feared answering to God if they did it. We got to get clear on this. All the way back in Moses' time, all the way back when there was no Bible, there wasn't a Bible yet because there was no Moses yet. So there were no five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch. Uh, the rest of the Bible wasn't written. They didn't even have a Bible. But they knew in their conscience that to kill children, no matter who ordered it, was a sin against God. And they feared God. I'm afraid of I fear God if I were to do this. And so they did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They practiced civil disobedience. They left the boys alive. And because the midwives feared God. Now watch this. What did God do? What did God do? God saw it. God watched it. Folks, please hear me. God saw this. He saw these midwives risking their own lives to save these children. And what did God do? He gave them families of their own. God blessed them with something they would never have had as a midwife because they saved children's lives. You can't tell me that abortion is justifiable, not to mention infanticide. It is an abomination to God. It is wrong. If you've done it, God will forgive you if you ask him to forgive you, but we've got to take a stand and be clear as a bell that abortion is a sin. It's a national sin, and America will not survive if we keep on doing this practice. I could go on, but I've got to teach the rest of this chapter. Let's look at another example in the New Testament. In the book of Acts, the disciples were commanded not to preach in the name of Jesus, a direct violation of Christ's command to them. So here they are. They have been ordered not to preach in Jesus' name. You can go say whatever you want, but just don't preach in Jesus' name. Don't do it. Well, Jesus had told them to go forth in his name. So we have two commands coming at us, one from Christ, who was God, and one from the culture, one from earthly authorities. And it, says, it tells us in Acts 5, 28 what they did. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. But Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than men. Peter is saying to them, you created a situation where we had to choose between keeping our conscience clear with God and obeying God and obeying you. And we've made our decision. We're going to obey God and take the consequences, but we're not going to obey you. Civil disobedience. All right? So when a choice must be made to obey God by disobeying men or disobey God in order to obey men, the answer is we must obey God 
rather than men. But for the most part, now let's just keep this balanced. For the most part, government is God's way of maintaining the public good and directing the affairs of the state because without government, we're in anarchy and there is no society. All right? Verse 3, for rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the person in authority, the police, the military, whatever? Then do what is right, and they will commend you. They won't fool with you if you do what is right. For he is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, you need to be afraid. You're right to be afraid. Because they're going to hunt you down, they're going to arrest you, and they're going to put you in jail. Because they do not bear the sword or the jail key in vain. He is God's servant. And interesting, God calls, for instance, the police his servant. Now, and again, I know exactly what many of you are thinking. But what about when the uh, police abuse their authority? You can't take an exception and destroy a rule, all right? Uh, Exceptions don't destroy the principle. The principle stands because there's an exception with every principle. But you don't destroy the principle for the exception. The exception never does away with the principle, okay? Therefore, it's necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but because of our conscience. If you don't do, uh, if you don't obey the law, then it's going to bother your conscience. And if it doesn't, you need to really pray about that because it should. Now, when functioning as God intended, the military, the police force, and other law enforcement agencies are God's servants to do what? Restrain evil. Now, interestingly, the word for servants comes from the same Greek word we translate into liturgy. It's used in Hebrews 1.14, for instance, to describe the duties of the angels. So God is telling us that law enforcement discharges a God-ordained duty. Not all rulers, admittedly, serve God in their private lives. I'm going to venture to say most of them probably don't. But regardless of whether they do or not, they discharge functions that are God-ordained. God will deal with them, and they will answer to God for their private lives. But what they're doing, what they're executing, the law, is God-ordained to restrain evil in a society that will go into anarchy overnight if they weren't there. Now, as to government, Paul is saying, that government is responsible for national safety. Look what he says. He's God's servant, an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. This means they've got to protect the community. They are to resist criminal elements in the community. Hence, rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those only who do wrong. The only people who should live in fear of law enforcement are lawbreakers. It's that simple. The Bible warns that the last days, well, I've really thought about this a lot in the last year, year and a half, with all that we've seen going down in our culture, Um, uh, this warning of Jesus in Matthew 24, he said, iniquity in the last days, iniquity is going to abound. Now, the word iniquity comes from the Greek word that means lawlessness, okay, Jesus said, before I return, you're going to see an increase in lawlessness in societies all over the world. 
They're going to go lawless. Now, there's very, four very important words in the Greek New Testament used to describe outbursts of lawlessness. And I want us to catch these. Hope you've got a pen and you're writing because I'm going to give you some really good notes here. All right, a brief scan of them, the four words for lawlessness, will help us understand why it's so crucial that nations have strong governments dedicated to protecting the community from the free expression of criminal passions, all right? The first word is komos. That's a, that's a Greek word for lawless, komos. And it is used to describe a troop of intoxicated revelers who at the close of an orgy with garlands on their heads and torches in their hands with shouts and songs wander through the streets with insult and wanton outrage for everyone they meet. That's komos. Can you believe the Bible is so accurate? Does that ring a bell? Anybody think Mardi Gras as I went over that? Did that occur to you? How about gay pride parades or obscenity, lewdness, horrible language, um, sin, perversion is flaunted in the face of the world? You know what that is? Comos. That's lawlessness. Mardi Gras. Same thing. City-sanctioned lawlessness. That's what it is. Comos. The second word for lawlessness is ekthra. Ekthra. And that's translated hatred or enmity. And in the ancient world, there were three kinds of enmity, uh, three kinds of ekthra. Uh, There was ekthra between class and class. In other words, class envy. We got that out there now? You better know we do. And it's being stoked and uh, inflamed intentionally by people all over our nation. Then there was enmity between the Greeks and the barbarians. That is, there was ekthros between the races. Yeah? And is that going on now? Oh, you better know it is. And there's a name for it, ekthros. The Bible described it before it ever showed up in our country. And there was enmity between man and man. And these enmities are flourishing today in the so-called enlightened 21st century. Not so enlightened. Matter of fact, if you were to ask me um, philosophically, um, and I would go theologically speaking, if you were to say describe our current time, 21st century, I, I don't think that I would be far off base to say we're in another dark ages. We're in other dark ages. Um, we've thrown the Bible out. We're believing superstitions and myths and fables all the time. Uh, gender myths and fables. Um, um, sexual myths and fables. We're believing philosophical myths and fables. We're, we're, we're believing, I, I, think, I believe evolution is a myth. It's a fable. It's, it's not, it's, there's a reason it's called the theory of evolution. Okay? Uh, So to me, the 21st century, in all honesty, folks, is anything but enlightened. Dark ages? I think we're in a type of another dark ages. Um, The third word for lawlessness in the New Testament is asotia. 
And asotia means abandon. That's another word for lawlessness. It's used in Luke 15 to describe the prodigal son, who we are told wasted his substance with riotous or abandoned living, lawless living. Uh, Asotia. We're filled, our nation is filled with people living an asotia lifestyle, a lifestyle of abandon to the worst of sins. The prodigal threw everything away. He went into riotous living. He gave up his inheritance. He exercised no restraint whatsoever, no regard for decency, no thought for the future. Asotia. That's lawlessness. And that's a type of lawlessness. Now, the fourth word and the last one is anomia. Anomia. Now, nomia is the Greek word for law. And when you put an A, an alpha, an A in front of a word, it negates the word. It turns it into a negative. So when you see anomia, it means lawless. Instead of law, it's no law. Lawless. Or having contempt for the law. Did you catch that? Contempt for God-ordained law. Is this word that is closest to the theme of Romans 13 that we're looking at tonight. Uh, It's this word Jesus used in Matthew 24, verse 12. This is the word he used to describe the increasing lawlessness that he predicted would abound in the last days. Government and law enforcement are there to restrain these different manifestations of lawlessness. That's why we have the police. That's why we have the military. That's why we have the government to restrain. That's why we have laws to restrain the evil that would overwhelm us immediately without God-ordained law. Now, have you noticed Have you noticed, and I know you've already thought of it as I go through this, that in virtually every walk of life, there now seems to be a breakdown of morals and a decline of respect for the law. A a generation which has abandoned the Bible is now paying for its folly for abandoning the Bible. We took the Bible out, what's in the schools now? We took the Bible out of schools, what's in them? Metal detectors. We took the Bible out and the commandments out, uh, the commandments giving the, the revealed will of God, what's right and what's wrong, and what now is in the schools? Lawlessness, murder, pandemonium, crazy teaching, nutty teaching, uh, teaching instruction that really has nothing to do with reading, writing, and arithmetic. No, it, it is indoctrination. Immoral indoctrination, theological indoctrination, gender indoctrination, anti-American indoctrination, Marxist indoctrination. It has flooded the schools because we took the Bible out, thinking that we were wise and didn't need God. That's lawlessness. And now we're paying the price. I never thought, ever, I never, ever dreamed that I would be living in a day where whole cities, Seattle, Portland, Austin, Texas, Washington, L.A. I could, I could go through a list. Literally voted in their city councils to defund God-ordained 
authority. How's that working out for you? How's that working out for you? That working out for you pretty good? Not what I'm reading. I'm reading that these cities that were foolish enough, can I say it? Stupid enough, ignorant enough to defund God-given authority, uh, the police, to remove guns from them, uh, money from them, to, to cause many of them to have to quit and walk away, to leave whole sections of your city unpoliced? How's that working out for you? I know how it's working out. Crime has skyrocketed. Murders have gone off the charts. Cities are literally collapsing in their infrastructure because the police are not there. What we said was, God, um, we don't recognize your God-given authority. We don't recognize what you told us to do to protect ourselves, what you've given us to protect ourselves. We're going to kick it out. But anytime you kick God out, you let the devil in. Now, I wonder how it's working out for Portland, Seattle, Austin. I've read the stats. They're all experiencing crime waves. So, some of these cities are literally calling for more police. But wait a minute, you defunded them. God help America. God help us. Because professing ourselves to become wise, we have become fools. The bottom line is, if it's this bad with government authority, if it's this bad with it, then what would it be without it but utter chaos? All right, we're going to move on. I could, I could land right here the rest of this time, but I got to move on. Next, we come to the whole issue of taxes. I'm not going to spend long on it. I know that's a bad taste in your mouth as soon as I say it, but we need to hear what he says. Verses 6 to 7, this is also why you pay taxes. For the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. He says, give everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. The authority uh, or the authorities in government and law enforcement need to be paid. And that's what taxes were originally for, to pay for the military, to protect us abroad, and to pay for protection within. This is one of the reasons for taxes. Paul does not enter into the rights, wrongs, and abuses of the taxation system. He simply tells believers that a Christian's leaders have a right, or a nation's leaders have a right to monetary support. Uh, Now, so far, Paul has addressed the God-invested authority of the state, submission to rulers, the payment of taxes, and respect for the public office as ordained by God. Now, next, he describes the Christian's obligations to all people. Now, here he's going to get really practical again and very interpersonal, relational. He's going to talk about how we're called to love. Verse 8 through 10. Let no debt remain outstanding. Get out of debt. That's the teaching of the Bible. Get out of debt. Except for the continuing debt to love one another. That's what we're indebted to do. For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law, the Mosaic law, the commandments. Don't commit adultery. Don't murder. Don't steal. Don't covet. And whatever other commandment there may be are summed up In this one rule, love your neighbor as yourself, because love does no harm 
to its neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. If you love people, you'll never break the commandments towards them. You won't slander them. You won't commit adultery and break up a marriage. You won't uh, bear false witnessing and hurt them. You won't break one of the commandments. Loving one another is, is doing the sum total of all the commandments. The need to love is supremely important in view of the hate-filled and godless generation in which we live. Since love does, does no wrong to a neighbor, it's the fulfilling of all the Mosaic law. And then he says in verse 11, he's now looking down the tunnel of time prophetically to the end of the age. And he says, and do this, understanding the present time, the hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. Amen. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Verse 13, let's behave decently, Christians. Let's behave decently as in the daytime. The world's walking around in the nighttime of spiritual darkness, but we're not in that darkness. We're in the daytime of spiritual light. So not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Verse 14, rather clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. Be like Jesus, walk like Jesus, think like Jesus, love like Jesus, be patient like Jesus, emulate Jesus, ooze Jesus. Uh, we are to, we are mirrors that are to reflect Christ to a dying world. He says, don't always be thinking about how to gratify the desires of your sinful nature. Now, the world is living as though human history is going to go on forever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The world thinks, oh, evolution, you know, we're evolving. We've been, we were birthed in evolution. We're here because of evolution. And we're going to keep on evolving to the next level and next level. And it's, it's just going to go on ad infinitum. But that's not true. That's not true. Peter predicted this attitude in society existing before the return of Christ. Here's what he says, 2 Peter 3, verse 3, as we come to the close tonight. First off, you need to know that in the last days, mockers are going to have a heyday. They will mock. And what are they going to say in their mocking? So, what's happened to the promise of Jesus coming? Well, you know, where's the return of the Jesus you believe in. Then they're going to say, our ancestors are dead, they're buried, and everything is going, to go, is going on just like it did from the very first day of creation. Nothing has changed. It's the same old, same old, we're all in the same old cycle. Life is going to keep on cycling on and on, and uh, it's never going to come to a close. There's not going to be some final end to the world as we know it. But the Christian knows God is in control of people and nations and is directing history to a predetermined end, and it's going to end. You know, at the end of all the, the older movies, when you watch, uh, you know, the older films, as soon as the last sentence is given by the actor, then 
this big, the end, comes across the screen. You know, MGM, for instance, and then the end. And we know the movie's over. All right? The people of our day are going to believe that's never going to come as far as this world goes. But the Bible says there's going to come a the end. And the movie, life as we've known it, the world as we've known it, is going to be over. The end. Peter said, the elements are going to melt with a fervent heat. The universe is going to go away, pass away with a great noise. The Bible says in the book of Revelation, towards the end, Revelations 20 and 21, that God is preparing a brand new earth, a brand new heaven, a brand new Jerusalem. And he's going to make, Revelation says, all things new. Because the old has passed away. The end. There's going to be a the end. And since the end is near, we're to rouse ourselves from sleep, says Paul. Every day brings us closer to that final day when all that we have anticipated in Jesus is going to become a reality. He's going to return. He's going to establish his millennial kingdom. It's going to be peace. He's going to rule the world with a scepter of righteousness. And uh, there's going to be war no more. They'll beat their swords into plowshares. And the lion is going to lay down with the lamb. The devil's going to be bound. And there's going to be peace on earth finally and ultimately and only through Jesus Christ. So because the night is nearly over and the day is about to dawn, it's critical that we believers rid ourselves of the works of darkness, all of them. It's time to clothe ourselves with the weapons of light. Our conduct is to be decent and honorable. Isn't that a powerful chapter? I'm going to ask all of you to stand with me, would you? And uh, wow, I'll tell you, this series in Romans has been such a blessing to me. And aren't these last chapters of, of practical instruction just, I mean, gold nugget after gold nugget after gold nugget of wisdom for the believer. So I want all of us as we're standing to lift our hands to the Lord and let's pray and close. Father, thank you for this incredible chapter of instruction on why you gave government, how we're to honor authority, how we are to um, justifiably um, practice civil disobedience if we are ordered to do something directly against our conscience or the will of God. We thank you, Lord, for the authorities you have given us. We pray for the authorities in this city and in Dallas and in the rest of the nation, the police. We give to you the law enforcement. We give to you the military. We give to you the government authorities. We give to you the laws that are on the books that are in keeping with your word. And we pray, Lord, that you will strengthen the police and show our society the sheer folly of seeking to do away with God-given, ordained authority. And Lord, we praise you. Help us to love others, which is the one thing we're indebted to God to do. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. See you next time.